Good morning. Um, today we're going to talk about a subject that really could go on for, for days, and that's not a warning. Um, it's only going to happen for about 40 minutes or so. Um, but we're going to try and tackle liberalism this morning. Um, and it is a, a daunting thing to tackle theological liberalism. So uh, what I'm going to give you today is a very um, uh summary version of it um, and kind of work through what, what it did uh, and how we got from um, the Reformation through and, and including the liberalism that we've seen. Um, and, and we really want to make a clear distinction here. What we're talking about is theological liberalism, which I'm going to define in a, a well, I'm not actually going to define it, but we're going to talk about some things associated with it um, as distinct from political liberalism, which we're just not going to talk about today. So um, where did liberalism come from? Um, liberalism is, is a brand new thing in the past couple hundred years that the church hasn't really faced that much before. There are features of it that, that came earlier, but this is kind of a brand new thing. Uh, liberalism is really a child of the Enlightenment. So um, before we had talked about Descartes and his whole, I think, therefore I am, and he sat around his little warm room and he decided that he was going to doubt as much as he possibly could. And, and after doubting this sort of, um, we call it skepticism, right? So he had, um, he wanted to doubt as much as he could to get sort of at the rock of what he couldn't doubt. And um, what he ended up with was, one, that his thinking, um, his own rationality in that sense, was sort of the centerpiece of all knowledge. So all of it started from there. He, he basically got to the point where he said, I think, therefore, I am, meaning I can doubt everything else, but I can't doubt that I exist. And what that did is it started kind of two things in motion. One it started rationality and human understanding as the basis of Western knowledge, uh, which is quite evil, as we see. People think that the medieval folks were sort of backwards in what they did. Um, this is why they're called medievals, and they're, they're, it's called the Middle Ages between the Enlightenment of the Greeks and the Enlightenment of, of Western Europe after they rediscovered the Greeks. Um, but for us, uh, those weren't dark ages. They, those people had a much firmer ground than what the Enlightenment was going to give to people. Um, and so this sort of individualized what I can know from my rationality. And the second piece of that is this idea that, that picking away at things is really the way to get at knowledge. And so what we want to do is to doubt as much as we possibly can, and we want to pick away at things and, and shuffle things that we can't know to the side so that we can get at the truth of what we can certainly know. Um, and that wasn't liberalism itself, but that formed the basis of sort of the soil that liberalism was going to grow out of. Um, it's a mix of, of the influences of German pietism, which we talked a little bit about, English deism and rationality, um, which basically led to, um, especially in Germany, something called historical criticism. And um, this basically was kind of flowing from the Reformation as well. So the Reformation had a slogan that was ad fontes. Does anyone know what ad fontes means? Font sounds like a fount, right? So it's, it's sort of like the source of the water. It means back to the sources. And what the Reformation meant by that was, we're going to go back to Scripture. We're not going to stand on councils. We're not going to stand on the popes. We're going to go back to 
to what the scriptures have to say, and we're going we're gonna to dig into those and find out what they say, which, which really does sound like the very thing that Luther did when talking about justification um, by faith, is, is this was based off of, it came from him reading and, and, and thinking through the Psalms and thinking through the book of Romans. It didn't come from sort of external sources. It came directly from scripture. And so um, what high criticism is going to do is, is at least part of it in the beginning, it's almost all history work. And the question that they're going to ask is, so the reformers went back to the source being the scriptures, but what is the source of the scriptures? And what they mean by that is, we have these detailed historical accounts in the scriptures, but where did the people who wrote scripture get those accounts? So where did the creation account actually come from, right? So even if you think Moses wrote it, you think Moses wrote that hundreds of years, if not thousands of years later, how did he get that story? What form did it come to him in? The flood narrative, same, same idea. You know, if you think Moses wrote Genesis, Moses wasn't born when that thing happened. How did that information come to him? Same thing with the Gospels. Right? So if you want to believe that Matthew wrote the gospel according to Matthew, you might be able to say, well, we have an eyewitness for that. But what about Mark? Mark wasn't a witness to these things. Where did he get his information? Where did Luke get his information? Um, how, did they, how did they collect it? Was it good information? Was it not good information? So what they're starting to do is, again, use that skepticism and pick away at the text and say, well, what can we actually know about the text? How can we get at the truth of what the text is saying and, and maybe get rid of some of the stuff that's not good and not true? And, and also then using these sort of presuppositions that they bring to the text as things that must be true. Um, and so what, what historical or biblical criticism, which is really the nut of what theological liberalism comes from, is basically applying what scholars, in many senses, and then it filters down, their results of these things filter down, what scholars think are somewhat neutral, rational reasoning to the biblical text. Um, and that basically says, okay, we believe that these things must be true. Okay? And we're going to take these things and we're going to use this sort of lens of viewing the text. And I'll take you through a couple of them so you know what I'm getting at. And we're going to apply it rigorously to Scripture. And we're going to see what kind of things we get out of that. And so um, they, they basically had a view of the world. And they said, this must be true of the world and we are going to apply this to Scripture and see what we get out of it. Now, do we do that ourselves? Do we have a view of the world that is maybe not necessarily what Scripture views the world of? Um, do we have those ourselves? Yes, okay. What is the difference between what we're doing and what historical critics do? Hopefully, maybe not always, but what, what should be the difference? If we already have these preconceived notions of how the world works, how can we be sure that we are we're not twisting Scripture ourselves? Right, right. So, so the deal is that you can't avoid that. 
So it's not, it's not like the liberal scholars here or the high critical scholars or biblical scholars um, were doing something untoward, right? At, at the very least, they were fairly upfront about their presuppositions coming into this, okay? So that's a good thing. Um, the problem is that they didn't let Scripture tackle those. And again, you go back to Descartes because Descartes was saying, hey, I'm the center of, of rationality. I, I know what is true because I can discover it. And, and they just kind of took this and said, well, then, then the, we need to critique the Bible in order to see what is true, in order to get it to, to give us up the, the truth of what it, it's saying, um, instead of themselves being critiqued by the Bible. And so that's always the challenge, is that if you have these preconceived notions, what you want to do is to to let Scripture continually critique what you might think of, the way you view the world. Let Scripture critique that instead of prepackaging and forming Scripture to say what you want it to say. And that happens, frankly, all the time. Um, It's tough. And so, um, but the liberals here were very clear that they had no interest in letting Scripture form them. They were going to to basically rip Scripture apart to make it conform to what they knew already must be true. And so there's a number of types of what we call criticisms, okay? So when we say criticism, it's not like what Brother Doug always does to me without any provocation at all, and that is just be critical of who I am as a human being. Um, That's not the kind of criticism what we're talking about. What we're talking about is this idea of we, we have this criteria, we've got these presuppositions, and we're going to take it to the Bible, and we're going to um, analyze it. We're going we're gonna to look at the Bible in light of these presuppositions and see what it gives to us. And so there's things like textual criticism, which we've talked about in here before. Um, textual criticism is saying, well, what, what should the actual text be? Because by this time, they were discovering that this was done even before the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in the 1950s or so. Um, they had already found out that we've got different Greek manuscripts that say different things at places. So how can we determine which one is correct or not? Okay, so that's textual criticism. Then there's something called source criticism. And that is, okay, well, if you look at the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we oftentimes have different sayings being used with different wordings, and those different wordings seem to change a lot of the meaning. So everyone, I think, in here probably knows, uh, you won't know it if I just ask you it, but you'll be able to figure it out. Does anybody know off the top of their head what the first beatitude is in the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Okay, excellent. Gold star. Extra prayers for the sale of your, your property. It's going to happen. What does Luke report that as? Blessed are the poor. Not blessed are the poor in spirit. Okay? There are a number of cases in the synoptics where it's clear that you have Matthew and Mark and Luke literally word for word taking things. Okay? Which implies that they weren't just doing this from an oral source because a lot of Jesus didn't talk in Greek. So they're already translating from Aramaic into Greek. To do that and end up with the exact same wording, like verbs, um, you know, not only nouns, but verbs in the same order, like saying the exact same thing, to have all of that be exactly the same is just 
it's almost impossible to believe. So there, there's likely a written source behind that. So what is that written source? How do we get at it? Um, how early is it? How reliable is it? Where did it come from? Because it doesn't appear to be Mark. It doesn't really appear to be Matthew himself. And so there's, there's all, where, where do these things come from? This was also done with uh, the Pentateuch. And so there's something else called a documentary hypothesis when it comes to the Pentateuch, which is just trash. I hate it. I hate it so much. Um, but this was the question. Where did these things come from? How did they get stitched together? How did they get put together? Matthew, even as an eyewitness, wasn't at everything that he records, right? So he has a record of the transfiguration. You know who wasn't recorded in the book of Matthew as being at the transfiguration? Matthew. Matthew has birth narratives. Matthew wasn't lurking, right? He wasn't born. He might have been born, but he wasn't there at the, at the angelic pronouncements and things like that. So where does he get that material? Then there's something called form criticism, which is basically saying, well, we have these sayings of Jesus, but they are put together by people for the church, right? And so the church oftentimes rearranges the form in which these sayings happen for their own good. So let's take that form apart and see what Jesus might have actually said. There's redaction criticism, which is looking at how things are edited and put together. There is literary criticism, which is looking at how Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and other people develop stories within Scripture. Um, there's canonical criticism, which is looking at, like, how does what, what is the, what is the book of Judges adding to the canon? Not just why is it there for the book of Judges' sake, but how does the book of Judges play with other documents within the canon? And things like that. There's rhetorical. Uh, we, we came up on something close to this when we are in our community group when we were going through um, Joshua's last speeches to the people of Israel. And one of the questions was, in that speech, he begins by relating all of the work that God had done for the people of Israel and some of their very poor responses to that before he then turns and says, will you follow the Lord? Okay? And the question that the guy asked was, why does Joshua do it in that order? Why not ask the question first and then recount what the Lord has done? It's basically rhetorical criticism. It's asking why do the authors put the things that they do? What are they trying to get out of a response from people? Okay, so all of that is daunting. It overlaps one another. It takes centuries and continents to, to kind of cover. I, I do want to talk about some features of it. And one of the features is this. Text can be seen and used in many different ways, okay? And, and this, is, this is, by the way, part of the good that a lot of this criticism did. There's, there's hardly ever one thing that any text can tell you. There's almost always multiple things if not an infinite number of things that a text can tell you. So if you go to Jesus' triumphal entry, right, there's a number of different questions that we can ask of that. The report of it in Matthew and, let's say, Luke, are two completely, not completely different, but they're slightly different things, okay? And so we can ask, why is Matthew reporting this differently from the way Luke and Mark report it? Why is it different? How is it different? Um, why does Matthew, by the way, include both a donkey and a colt? So if you go back and you read that account, Luke says that there's a donkey. Matthew records there being both a donkey and a colt. Why does he do that? Does that imply that one is wrong historically and the other is right? Were there two things there and Luke only records the one? Does, 
Jesus then ride on both somehow? I don't know how he does that. Probably one foot on one, one foot on the other, like, like he's in Cirque du Soleil coming in. And that's actually why people were clapping for him. Um, right? Or, or is Jesus just riding on one, but why would Matthew include two? So there's, there's a number of things to, to ask for that, but you can do something even more important. What does that triumphal entry do for the plot of Matthew? And so when we talk about the plot of Matthew, Matthew is clearly working toward a crescendo, right? This, this antagonism between the chief priests and elders and Jesus himself. How does the triumphal entry play into that? And bringing along the crowds with him, what does that do? It's clear that Jesus is well-respected. What does that do for the, the plot of Matthew? Um, how does it develop the person of Jesus in Matthew? Like, we are giving a, we're being given a picture of who Jesus is. How does the triumphal entry change what we thought about Jesus up to this point in the Gospel of Matthew? So there's all kinds of good questions that you can start to ask, and, and a lot of these criticisms help us ask those questions so that it's not all bad. Um, so you can look at text in a number of different ways, and the second thing is presuppositions that you bring to the text is going to carry a ton of weight. They will influence the way you view those texts. They just do. And, and the more you realize that and the more you know it, the better you're going to be at reading texts. And, and at the very least, these are two good features that come out of this. There are some incredibly bad things, though, that came out of liberalism. Um, and so we're going to talk about three of those things. First, um, the first bad thing that came about was the straightforward challenging of authorship of things. Now, it started somewhat, in my view, innocuously. So all the way back in the 1600s, people were saying, I don't know if Moses wrote the Pentateuch. Okay, so traditionally, not just, um, not just Christians, but Jews held Moses wrote the Pentateuch, right? Why might we question whether Moses wrote the Pentateuch? Because he dies. That's, a, that's like one with a bullet, right? Like, unless his hand came up out of the grave, which he, didn't, he was buried in a tomb, but that's even stranger, right? And wrote his final, like, bit, or God told him, this is what you're going to write, Moses. Moses died. No, I don't want to do it, right? But, but, you know, so we come to that and we're like, okay, maybe it's just those segments where, where Moses is, is quoted as being the most humble man, right? It doesn't, that's a strange thing to write about yourself, okay? So there's a lot of people who are like, that doesn't sound right. So are there other reasons why we might think that Moses didn't write this? And a lot of these things come down to vocabulary and style. So we can track um, where people use words, how they use words. And this was a feature of, of the Enlightenment. This was actually done, um, I don't have the name of the document in front of me. This was act, it's called the Donation of Peter, where there was this Greek document written that supposedly talked about how the, um, the church was donated this piece of land um, by the apostles and, and things like this. And um, using this kind of stylistic understanding, they're like, yeah, that was just a complete fake. It was a forgery done in like the 14th century instead of the, the second century like you guys claimed. And so it can be done in a good way. For, for Moses, I don't think it's that big of a deal, right? So, and the reason why I don't think it's that big of a deal is because yeah, tradition holds that out, but Moses is nowhere claimed to be by Scripture the author of those things, right? 
where we have the record of things that happened to Moses quite a bit, but it never says Moses wrote these things down, right? It says Moses preached these things in, in Deuteronomy. Moses spoke to the Lord in this way. We have inside information on what those are, but he could have passed that along to Joshua. Um, he could have passed it along to a number of people. So I don't think it's that big of a deal. Where it does become a big deal is where we have the name of the author or where we're flat out denying that somebody wrote something, okay? And so we get up to Paul, and there are, in, in the most liberal uh, sectors of Christianity, there are now only four what they call undisputed books of Paul. Anybody want to take a stab and guess at what those four undisputed books are? Romans is absolutely undisputed. No one doubts that Paul wrote Romans. You've, you've got to, you, you're not even, you can't be in the academy if you think that Paul doubted that he wrote. You probably can. Duke will probably take you, but most other places wouldn't. So, Duke's actually a decent divinity school. No, Ephesians is not. First and second Corinthians, yes. And one more. He's angry. This is probably why they like it. Galatians. Those are it. Everything else they either call disputed or they, they talk about as though Paul could not possibly have written them. And that includes books like First and Second Timothy, especially First and Second Thessalonians, which um, the academy doesn't like. And I say the academy, this is the most liberal form of the, the academy, because they look at the vocabulary that's being used, Okay. So while we would date, I would probably date Galatians before any of the other books, I think First and Second Thessalonians for conservative people are dated really early, and First and Second Timothy are dated really late. But they look at the, the, the material that's written about, they look at the vocabulary that's used, they look at the emphases of these books, and they come back and they say, well, if Paul wrote Romans, First and Second Corinthians, and the book of Galatians, he could not possibly have written First Timothy. Because in no place in those books does he seem like he cares about the organization of the church like he does in 1 Timothy. Because he doesn't use this word and this word and this word and this word. Now, the problem with that is that all of a sudden when you start to jettison those things, you can then say, well, those books are not authoritative, right? Because the reason why they're authoritative is that Paul wrote them. If they're forgeries and already falsified the name of Paul, then there's no reason to think that anything else that he wrote, even about hearing from God, is truthful at all. And so we end up with this really bad spot where if Paul didn't write these books, then we have no reason to trust the person who would have lied about being Paul in the first place. Okay? Um, there's been a whole bunch of holes poked in that because obviously writing an a personal letter to somebody like Timothy is going to make you use different language than writing a general letter to a church. And we're talking about decades, right? So when you, when you think about when Paul wrote First and Second Thessalonians very early in his career, somewhere around AD 50, uh, and where he might have written First and Second Timothy 20 years later, listen, in 20 years, the way you use language changed. Paul himself, not a perfect man, become sanctified in that time. Um, maybe his emphases change a little bit. Not that he's not being led by the Spirit, right? But Paul didn't, Paul wasn't gifted with like 
the entire Encyclopedia Britannica's worth of salvation historical knowledge the minute that he was saved. He's still working this stuff out. It doesn't mean that the things that he wrote earlier are not true. It just means that his emphasis has changed. So there's reasons to believe that that's not true. It also becomes a real problem for things like Isaiah, okay? So um, Isaiah generally is believed to have at least two different authors, if not three. They're called um, creatively Proto-Isaiah, then Deutero-Isaiah, and then Trito-Isaiah. Um, somebody out there probably has a Quarto-Isaiah um, because they just they can't keep from breaking things apart. Which again, in the, in the dealing with Isaiah isn't, to me, a huge problem on the face of it because Isaiah's prophecies are being given to us. If Isaiah wrote it or somebody else wrote it, as long as you believe that those prophecies are real and true, it doesn't really matter, right? The real problem, though, is the presupposition why they think that that's the case. So if you look at Isaiah 1 to 39, a lot of it is really negative, right? Judgment coming upon the nations, judgment coming upon Israel, God is displeased time and time and time again. These are the themes that are running. And then in Isaiah 40, like everything changes, okay? So Isaiah had a very bad couple of weeks, and then he woke up, and he heard the birds chirping, and now life is really good. And in Isaiah 40 and on, everything has changed, right? The suffering servant's going to come. God loves you. He's going to care for you. He's going to be there with you. And scholars look at this, and they're like, nah, one guy couldn't have written both things, okay? Now, the real problem with that is that we are called on to believe both things. If If we can't believe that a guy was able to hear from God and know and, and report the judgment of God and the salvation of God at the same time, how can we possibly believe it, right? It automatically underhand or undermines the very things that Isaiah is leading us to believe to hold these two things together at the same time. And so a lot of this challenging authorship stuff, um, we don't know a lot of the authors, but where we do know them, it's kind of important that they stay that way. Uh, we, we, we have to keep, especially when Paul is writing as somebody of authority, jettisoning that jettisons all of the authority. It makes us masters over the text instead of letting Paul be the master over us. So that's one of the the problems. Um, This led into a second problem, and that is they simply started to challenge the facts of the Bible. And this is probably what most of you know liberalism is doing. If you come in with the mindset that miracles can't happen, you know what you're going to do when you come to a miracle in the Bible— well, that couldn't have happened. Um, and you, you have a number of attacks on miracles um, throughout the ages saying things like, well, we never see miracles. And so basically the argument is we don't ever see miracles, therefore miracles can't happen, which isn't even like a rational argument. Like that's, that's not, you know, I, I, we've never seen dinosaurs in the flesh other than Jurassic Park. But we, we know that they, they existed, right? Like we, we, and they might say, well, we have proof of that. And eh, okay, kind of, but you haven't seen it really. What you've got is a scattering of bones that you've pieced together. Um, because they know that it can't happen, um, they started to eliminate much of the miracles. They, they said, this is a, a, a primitive people who are witnessing things that they can't explain. And so the only way that they can explain it is by fabricating that God did this, okay? So the things that we're preaching about in Exodus, the Red Sea crossing is one of those things, right? They're like, well, 
it was probably a very low pool of water that got dried up, and so they waltzed across it, and then all of a sudden a flood came back and it destroyed their enemies. Okay, well, that's quite a coincidence. Like, no matter how, like, and they do the same thing with the Jordan River. They're like, it was probably like some sort of landslide upriver that kept the water from flowing down. Okay, even so, quite a coincidence there, right? Like, if you don't want to chalk that up to God, that's fine, but uh, that's like your choice, man. That's, that's not, it's not denying the fact that God could have used the landslide to stop that from happening. So, they, um, they kept doing that with miracles, and then they also did it with one other thing. Does anybody know the other thing that would have caused people who don't believe in miracles problems? Uh, yes, but that's, a, that's still on the miracle side. So it's not just miracles. That's a good answer. We'll get to the birth of Jesus here in a second. It's, um, and, and not in October or November. We'll get to it in December like God intended. Um, <laughs> no, we'll get to it later today, actually. Um, not, not just in miracles, but what else would they say can't happen? They also don't believe that the resurrection, again, a miracle. But I'm, I'm probably not asking the question correctly. What? Create, yeah, they would do that with creation. What I'm looking at is prophecy, okay? So they don't believe that prophecy can happen either, right? And so whenever you have, like, people like Jeremiah coming in, or Deuteronomy 30 and 31, where, where Moses is like, listen, these curses are going to happen, and God's going to come, and he's going to move you out of the land. They read that, and they say, Moses couldn't have known that. That's ridiculous. So here's what happened. Some guy in the exile thought, you know, it'd be really snappy if Moses wrote that. And so we're going to write it up and we're going to slap it on the end of Deuteronomy like Moses did it, okay? This is really prominent in the dating of the Gospels. So what happened in AD 70 that was incredibly significant for the the meaning of the Gospels? There's two events, really. Rome destroys Jerusalem. And what happens at the end of Jesus' life before he gets life back again? (laughs) He prophesies that he, not only that Jerusalem's going to be destroyed, but that he is going to die. And so they look at those things and they say, one, the church had to fabricate the fact that Jesus prophesied that because Jesus would never have prophesied that. And secondly, there can't be a gospel written before AD 70. There just can't be because that's too early. What, what we need to do is, is date all those things super, super late. And the book of John, because it was super theological, they're like, there, there's no, we, this is not a um, historically reliable document at all, probably not before the, uh, the middle part of the second century, um, which scholars were super, uh, the, the best part about that, scholars were super confident in that. Um, the earliest known fragment that we have of any document is from about 127 AD, and it happens to be from the Gospel of John, because God's got a sense of humor. So, um, they're just, they're, they're bringing these presuppositions and saying these things have to be true. It can't be that prophecy is real. It can't be that these miracles happen. These were primitive people, um, or they were, these miracles were said to have happened simply to make Jesus sound greater or more important, yada, yada, yada. That also includes all the miracles that happen around Jesus. Not only that Jesus performs, but that happened to him, the virgin birth, the resurrection from the dead. We don't believe these things happen because we know that they can't happen. This also then gets back into 
um, the first, the second, the third, and now the fourth quest for the historical Jesus. Okay? So the idea was that the Jesus that we read about can't possibly be the Jesus who was. And so there is this distinction between who the historical Jesus was and who the Jesus of faith was. Okay? And so what scholars did was they said, well, what we want to do, what, the only things that we can keep are the things that don't benefit the church, things that sound weird, right? So if you have something recorded in a gospel that sounds like, like would have been difficult for the church, then that must have been original. Okay, so Jesus saying, um, the Father alone knows the time of the, the end, right? The son doesn't know. And they say, well, the son doesn't know. Well, that, that's probably original. He probably did say that because that doesn't benefit the church to keep that. Um, but almost everything else, like they're, they're saying, this is just fabrication of the church. And what they, they attempted to do was to, to pull back on, on all of the things that they found until they found what they, they could historically verify. This must have been what Jesus looked like. And there's a reason why there's four of those quests because each one is an absolute rejection and failure, Right? If you, if you had done it right the first time, you wouldn't need a second quest. Once you find the Holy Grail, you keep it, right? You don't have to go on another quest for it unless your wife misplaced it somewhere. So um, there's a reason why there's four of these things, because the, the idea behind all of it is just unsettled. And the idea that you can, you can somehow get behind the text is this sort of real problem. Uh, there's a quote from a man named George Tyrell. Um, Harnack, he's, he's going to be mentioned in here, was one of the guys in the quest, and he says, the Christ that Harnack sees, looking back through 19 centuries of Catholic darkness, is only the reflection of a liberal Protestant face seen at the bottom of a deep well. In other words, they just, they wanted a Jesus that looked like them. And so all they did was get rid of all the stuff that made them uncomfortable, all the things that they didn't like. And what they were left with is just a Jesus who said, go be a really good person because that's what they thought Jesus should be like. So they not only challenged the authorship and therefore the authority, they challenged the facts and therefore the history. Um, the, the next thing that happened was just challenging history itself and the importance of history. This is the work of pretty much one man in the middle part of the early part of the 20th century, 1920s or so, named Rudolf Bultmann. Um, Rudolf Bultmann wrote this incredibly influential work on Romans in which he, he starts this process of saying, you guys are worried so much about history. History doesn't matter that much. What matters is sort of our existential reaction to the gift of God. And so he, he went through this process that was <clears throat> typically known as demythologizing, which sounds like it's our, our cup of tea, right? Getting rid of the myth of the Bible. But what he meant by that was ignoring the myth of the Bible, okay? So those myths are there to teach us something about God. And what really matters is what we get from it. What really matters is how we interpret it. Does it matter if Jesus was actually resurrected or not? No. What actually matters is what that does for us, okay? And so you, you it sounds at first like, like, that's a noble thing, because he, he doesn't really want to mess with the text all that much, although Bultmann does a fair amount. Um, but what he actually ends up doing is, is worse somehow, because he, he basically argues that, that the history of the thing doesn't matter, and it just matters, like, that you have this sort of existential 
feeling after you read the text of what God is doing for you? Well, I mean, Paul, Paul's really clear, right? I mean, it's hard. I, want, I would like to say, I, I'm sure that Rudolph um, wrote at some point in time something on 1 Corinthians, but it would have been really hard for him to deal with Paul saying, if Jesus wasn't raised from the grave, then none of this means anything, right? Like, he, he is really firm on the fact that the history of the thing matters. It's not inconsequential. So what Bultmann tried to do was make Christianity like every other religion, and this is the real difference between Christianity and one of the major differences between Christianity <clears throat> and every other religion is the fact that Christianity is rooted in something that happened in history, right? You could take Islam and you could remove Muhammad from it. And you could say, does this actually impact what Islam says? And in a certain way it would, but Allah, according to their view, could have revealed this to anybody, right? It's just a dictation that he heard through an angel in a cave. It could have been anybody. He could have picked a different prophet to use, not just Muhammad. And so the historical nature of what happens to Muhammad isn't actually all that important to the core of what Islam is actually saying. That's not true of Christianity. Christianity needs something to have happened in history for it to be true. Otherwise, it's completely rejected. Um, so, again, this is, these things are really bad. Um, the response to these things um, were good. Um, first, critiques were critiqued, right? Um, one of the, the strangest things that when you come to is like rhetorical criticism, and they'll come to a passage in John, and they'll be like, this passage doesn't make sense where it is. This must have been put here by an editor later. And the response to that is, if it's so obvious to you, wouldn't it have been obvious to them? Like, how bad of an editor do you think this is that he said, I like this little bit, but I don't know where to put it, so I'm just going to put it here. I don't know why I slipped into a southern accent. Excuse that. So um, it was more of a hillbilly accent, but it still didn't fit. So I, 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 true. Uh, I apologize for that. But but the, 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 the response to that is, like, you either have this very, very bad editor who doesn't do things well, or you have a really good editor who makes it somewhat seamless. So either you can spot it, in which case it's probably not actually being edited, right? It's more likely that the author himself did that. Or you can't spot it, in which case you can't spot it so you don't know that an editor's there in the first place. Is everybody following that? I had an example, it would probably be a little bit easier, but you see these things all the time. And so what people began to do is poke holes at the critiques, saying what you think is actually going on, your presuppositions are, are just wrong. They're wrong. You, you don't need to believe that. Secondly, um, the church was pretty, pretty sure that we need to kind of secure up the history of this thing. Um, so in 1909, the Presbytery of New York State ran into a problem because they had three people that they were going to ordain who were wishy-washy on the virgin birth of Christ. So they were questioned on it, and they said, not that they didn't think it could happen, and not that it didn't happen, but they said, we're unsure if it happened or not. And so the presbytery didn't know what to do. They didn't know, can we, can we still ordain these guys? Should we not ordain these guys? And so there's some himmin and hawn about this, and they came up with these, these um, procedures to say, 
they have to affirm these things in order to get through. This, by the way, was, ironically enough, um, this is in 1909. This was affirmed by the PCUSA, which is now the incredibly liberal form of Presbyterianism, but they were the original fundamentalists, so that's, that's interesting. They came up with five things that everyone who was going to be ordained had to believe, okay? So the virgin birth of Christ is one of them, right? Does anybody know, want to take a stab at what the other four are? Inerrancy and, infa- well, not infallibility, they don't say that, but the inerrancy of Scripture resurrection, bodily resurrection, not the spiritual resurrection, not, not floating as a spirit up to heaven to wish you good luck, but like literally a guy got out of a tomb. That's three. I don't know why I'm holding this up. Three. That's three. The other two? What's that? Yeah, the Trinity, um, Trinity is not a problem because it's already abstract thought, right? So uh, it, it does become a problem. Like the way that they're going to deal with Christ is a problem. Um, not even creation, not, not that, although it is a big deal, uh, but it's, it's more basic than that. Mir- miracles can happen. God can interact with the world in any way he seems fit, even if that goes against what naturally we think might need to occur. So miracles can happen. And then that there is a sacrificial atonement for sin. Um, that was also something that they really disliked because that's not the kind of God we want to serve. A, a God who is vengeful and wrathful, we don't, we don't need that right? So we just want a God who really wants us to be good people and is kind, super kind to us and all things. And God is super kind, but not so much that, um, that his justice is not an actual part. These are labeled fundamentals, and it becomes a, a larger project um, down the road. This is where fundamentalism comes from, uh, that these folks were labeled as fundamentalists because they believed in these fundamentals as opposed to the liberals who didn't believe in them at all. Um, one of the other things that happened was the writing of this book, Christianity and Liberalism, um, which is an extraordinarily clear and helpful book. What Macon does, uh, um, Presbyterians went through their own like little upheaval during this time because eventually they were going to lose Princeton Theological Seminary to liberalism, um, and that's why they founded Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. Macon was one of those people, and in Christianity and liberalism, what he does is go through point by point and say, this is what Christians have always believed. This is what liberals now believe. These are not versions of the same thing. These are two different things. So when he says Christianity and liberalism, what he's doing is saying there is Christianity, and then there's liberalism, and the two are not the same. And so he points out that in, in the nature of their doctrine, in the nature of God and man, the Bible, um, what we think of Christ, um, what accounts for salvation, and what the church is, in each of these cases, liberalism and Christianity do not see eye to eye. And therefore, he argues very, very soundly that they're not the same thing. So st- stop calling this liberal faction Christians. They're not Christians. They don't believe in Christianity, um, which is probably true. Um, I, I did want to leave you with a warning. Um, we're running out of time, so I can't give you that particular. It's probably for the best. Um, the last thing I would, I would say that they did was start to trust the text. Um, what you can see in all of this is there is this idea that what, what liberals are trying to do is get, kind of dig through the text to get to the gold underneath, right? So we do want to historically know what happened, 
and we want to know the truth of what happened. And what they thought is that they needed to sort of get behind the text to see what that was. We want to know who Jesus really was, and they thought that they had to get behind the myth to see what that really was. They, they thought, we want to know what the Bible really says, and so we've got to, we've got to clear out the myth and the error of what was placed there. And that's a really bad way to go about living life as a Christian, right? The Bible is given to us as the treasure. The, the Bible is not something, is not dirt for us to sift through so that we can find the diamonds or the gold somewhere in there. We, sometimes we use that kind of language, but what we mean is you are digging in Scripture because Scripture itself is the gold, right? Scripture itself is the good thing. We're trying to find the good. We're not, we're not shuffing scripture off to the side and saying, okay, well, we can ignore this bit of the rubbish so that we can get at the good stuff. And they're, they're just always saying that there's something better than scripture out there. The scripture is keeping us somehow from knowing what the truth is. Scripture is keeping us from knowing who the real Jesus is. Scripture is keeping us from seeing the, the goodness of who God is because it talks about these silly miracles and um, virgin birth and resurrections and um, Red Sea crossings and all that stuff. But, but to be really rational people, we need to get rid of that. And part of this is tied into, well, we're this kind of people now. We're modern people now, and we can't believe in that stuff. The church has always fought that, right? This is exactly what the Greeks would have said to them at the beginning. We're, we're Greeks. Somebody rising up from the dead is dumb, no one can believe that. And the church was like, all right, well, that's what happened. So either believe it or not. And so when we look at modernity, we're not, this is not a new issue or post-modernity. It's not a new issue. It's the same thing the church faced. People looking at us and being like, no one believes that. And the, the answer is not to say, well, let's make it palatable, right? The answer is to say, okay, but this is true nevertheless. And we proclaim and we let the spirit of God work. So, um, the one thing I would, I would caution you about, and I, I've got a, I think it's a good example, but we can't go into it today, is be very wary of accusing people to the left of you of being liberals, okay? So there are plenty of people who don't read the Bible the way we read them who still hold to the inerrancy and the infallibility of the Word of God. And they might be theologically left of where we are, but you better make sure that they are actually denying something fundamental before you go labeling them. Because again, if you listen to Macon, if we're gonna call somebody a liberal um, and say that they're unorthodox, which I've heard people use for things that I just don't think is quite appropriate, um, you, you, you've gotta be really careful about throwing around that kind of language, okay? So liberalism, you can tell this is like, these are people who are just out there saying, well, the, the resurrection didn't happen and the word of God is just, um, it, it may or may not be what we have in front of us and, and we're basically the, the people who figure that out. Um, there are people who can believe things further to the left than we do um, who aren't necessarily doing that. And so you've gotta be a little bit careful about just throwing that label around because it, it does carry weight. And um, I think that we don't always do a good job of that. So that's the warning. But the warning is not to take liberalism not seriously. Um, this denial of the authority of the text of God is, is a harbinger of bad things. And so we need to be very careful about it. So, all right, quick questions or long questions. Yes, ma'am. 
I'm not going to go into the example was a was a different thing altogether, but I would say things like um, uh, we might view egalitarians that way, and we might be able to go to First Timothy two eleven twelve and so on and say, well, they're not handling that text correctly. There are egalitarians out there who handle those texts as though they are authoritative, but they are tr- there's a difference between denying the word of God and interpreting it differently, okay? And so they, they are very clear that they are interpreting it differently, and they still think that it is the infallible and errant word of God, but they're, they're handling it differently. So interpretation is wrong? Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, because we're not there, right? We, we, we can believe that they're wrong in that, even though we would think that that is, uh, that is a liberal position because the further left you go, the more normal that position becomes. But that doesn't mean that they're necessarily liberals who are denying the authority of the text. I've, I've, you know, um, it reminds me of a joke uh, where somebody asks um, somebody if they believe in infant baptism and they say, believe it, I've seen it. Um, so... The, <laughs> It's the same, same way with, like, I, I, I know that those people exist because I've read them. And they're, they're hand, I don't agree with their interpreting the words. They're, they're saying the words say something different in the Greek. They've got reasons for that, not bad reasons. I don't think that they're great reasons, but not bad reasons. The context of the book and where it happens. And so they're arguing from the book. We, I think that we would say that they're wrong. But I don't think that I would want to say, but they don't care about inerrancy or something like that. And that's actually particularly the issue. It is, it is difficult to separate out the interpretation that someone is offering from the reason why they're interpreting it that way. And oftentimes what we do, and even very good scholars do, is they hear the interpretation and they say, oh, it's because they're, they're buying into liberalism. But that's not always the reason why. People sometimes just interpret the Bible differently than we do. So um, we just don't want to start doing that, throwing the labels out for anyone who's to the left of us. However, um, that doesn't mean that we also buy into their interpretation. Like we can say, that's a bad interpretation. The, the example that I was going to give to you was about somebody who misidentified a genre in Scripture and denied something that seems to be historical. Um, he was called unorthodox because of it. The guy was writing a book backing the historical veracity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He was clearly conservative in every way. He believed in the authority of Scripture. But there's this one little part of Matthew that's really weird, and he said, I'm not sure that that's historical. I think that there's reasons why Matthew would have placed this really short little bit of a pock, uh, uh, not apocrypha, but um, um, apocalyptic in there. Apocalyptic is symbolic, but it's not really historical, right? Well, he was, he lost his job. Um, he was ripped apart by major evangelicals for not believing in the inerrancy of scripture and denying that history is history and things like that. He didn't actually do that. He just he thinks that it's he thinks that that particular text is of a different sort than other texts, and that's a real danger. I mean, it literally cost that dude his job. That's not a small thing. It's not a small thing, um, and and there's a bit of of um, personal damage that goes along with that. That his reputation in evangelical circles is sort of soiled now 
because of that. Um, I think that he was wrong, but I think that he was wrong in his interpretation, not in his assumptions about the text. Uh, in his assumptions about the, the word of God. His assumptions about the text were bad. That led him to a bad conclusion. But. Well, you, you said that liberals are somewhat not Christians at some point, right? Yeah, at some point in time, it, it becomes clear, yeah. Can that be synonymous with calling them heretics? And is that something? Yeah, you know, um, people, I, I don't know how I feel about that. Heresy was always sort of like really well defined is going against the creeds, but I, I think that the word itself is used to define people who are trying to be Christian but are sub-Christian. And, and that seems to be what liberalism is. They, um, like Mormons and others, they want to keep the mantle of Christian, and they'll even talk nicely about Jesus, but they're going to deny substantial things um, from Scripture and they're just going to deny the word that is written. A denial of the word, especially when it is clear, no matter what you then say about Jesus, is a very dangerous place to be. Um, we, it doesn't always bleed over directly into being heretical, right? That you, we can say that they're out, but it becomes pretty close to it. So, and all the LGBTQ stuff, which is where a lot of liberal churches are, I mean, when they say that we, we are, um, you know, friendly and hate doesn't belong here, okay, well, oh, fair, but what do you mean by that? What, how theologically does that work out? What do, you, what do you, if somebody who is homosexual comes forward and says that they have repented and believed in Christ, or just, I believe in Christ, probably didn't use repent at that particular church, um, what, do you, what do you do? How do you teach them to follow Jesus? What does that look like? And I think that, that that's where you start to see the rubber hit the road. So there is a part where they, they tip over, but there's a gray area in the middle where we're just, we've got to be a little bit careful as to how we're, we're thinking about them. Yeah. But classic liberalism is just like, what we're talking about are people who are just like, none of this can happen. This is ridiculous that you people believe that. Yeah, and, and even those five, those five are a little, right, right. Those five are a little weird because they're really particular to that case. Like the virgin birth of Christ, I, when I, the first pastorate that I took, I, I went to Tennessee to have this interview with this church and um, the whole church was there because it was really small. And I got asked one, one theological question as an interview and it was only, do you believe in the virgin birth of Christ? Like I could have, I could have been a flat-out Mormon. And they would have been like, well, as long as you believe in the virgin birth of Christ, you're good, right? I wasn't a Mormon then, so it was okay. Um, but the virgin birth of Christ is kind of, like, once you say that miracles can happen, that seems like that just kind of naturally flows off of, the, off of it. So um, when we have something like that, right? Like, that's why we have the Baptist faith and message, why we, we have we have creeds in the church, and we, we adhere to those things. Those are, those are the protections. Those are the guardrails. Um, where we get outside of that, that is where churches that don't have those guardrails get into those problems. Where do you draw the line? You've got to draw it somewhere, right? Where do you draw it? 
And if you're not drawing it anywhere, what are you doing? What are you doing? So, yeah. Uh, the kids are back, which means there are no more questions except for whose kid is that. Um, and the answer is probably mine. So um, let's pray and, uh, and thank God for our time. Father, uh, I, I am thankful for much um, that has come as good as far as the inquiries that people have made into your word. Uh, at the same time, Father, we, um, we know that much damage has been done to your word, especially in Western culture, um, by a number of these, these scholars and critics. And we pray, Father, that uh, you will keep your people safe from these things, that we will hold fast and tightly to your word, that we will um, love your word, that it will be a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path, that we will view it as pure and holy and good for the spiritual growth of your people, preparing us for every good word. Work. Um, may your word be exalted here. Uh, may we always uphold it, and may we seek to live our lives by it. Let it change us, Father, for the good of your people and the glory of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.